Great. Well, welcome. This is uh, Religion Unplugged podcast. I'm Paul Gladder, executive editor, and I'm here with the writer Tish Harrison Warren, who is based in lovely Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and is an ordained priest in the Anglican Church in North America. And she's a writer. She's a writer in residence at Ascension Church, as I understand it, in Pittsburgh regularly for several outlets on religion and, and other topics. Uh, but we're here to talk about her latest book. So welcome, Tish. Thanks for having me. So this book, it just came out this year, right? And it's called uh, Prayer in the Night for Those Who Work or Watch or Weep. It came out a week ago. So it's brand new. It's interesting. It's hard for me to sum up a, a particular thesis because the book has a lot of themes that it kind of weaves together. It's, it's kind of a tapestry of different ideas. The book kind of picks up in 2017 in my own life. So there's some kind of memoir parts of it. It's not a memoir, but there's some, it reaches into my own life. It was just a hard year for me. There was six months where we moved to Pittsburgh from Austin, Texas um, in the middle of January. So much darker, much longer nights in the middle, the winter there. And then a week later, my father passed away uh, suddenly. we found out we were pregnant the day after his funeral had this um kind of medically dramatic miscarriage uh three weeks later that I, that's where the book kind of starts and uh and then um lost another child to miscarriage in the second trimester kind of a, a later miscarriage we lost a son that same year so after about six months it wasn't like unheard of catastrophe. It was just six really hard months and um, that a lot of people face. A lot of people face loss of parent or moving or um, loneliness or um, losing children or disappointment. So losing children to miscarriage, at least that's fairly common. So um, I just found nights really difficult and I found prayer really difficult. Even though I'm a priest, I say in the book, I was a priest who couldn't pray. And so um, uh, I was struggling a lot with how to trust God, with the idea of what theologians call theodicy. How can God be good and powerful and bad things still happen in the world? Part of the way back to prayer for me was this um Anglican nighttime prayer office called Compline, which is the last prayers of the day. And I take one prayer out of Compline, the prayer I've come to particularly love that begins, keep watch dear Lord with those who work or watch or weep. And then the prayer goes into all these different kinds of categories of human vulnerability. It talks about death and mortality, sickness, weakness, weariness, suffering, affliction, joy, each chapter of this book is framed around one particular phrase in that prayer. And I kind of use that prayer, um, like a, the analogy I've used is like a scuba diver with a distance line or a guideline tethers himself to something nearer to the surface so they can go down into these kind of dark depths and then and still make it back up to the surface and the the prayer ended up being kind of that for me it was my way into these bigger deeper questions about how can god be good when there is suffering in the world so the book is a dealing with themes of suffering um doubt uh how does one trust god grief 
also human vulnerability, the fact that all of us can be wounded, that we're mortal, that we can get sick, and prayer in the midst of all of that. Like, what's prayer look like in the midst of all of this deep, deep human vulnerability? Yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, this idea of you turning to your faith tradition, you know, liturgical idea that, that, that applies to your everyday life. And I think your first book, The Liturgy of the Ordinary, um, dealt with that kind of idea. So in a way, it sounds like this follows up some, maybe some of the thoughts in your first book. Yeah, it's, it's a, there's some overlap. It's certainly not a sequel. I mean, tonally, man, it's super different because the, the first one's really dealing with ordinary life, just a very average day. And the, and the second book um, is dealing much more with sorrow and doubt uh, in a way that the first book didn't. The overlap is, is what you picked up on in the idea of spiritual practice. I'm an Anglican priest, so spiritual practice, formation, the way habits form us, the way that our faith is often much more times directed by kind of our, our practices and habits and, the, and things that form us often more than what we, you know, may profess even to believe. Those those are really interesting ideas to me. So I guess the overlap is, first of all, just where is God in our regular lived experience of life? And second, are there practices in spiritual formation that, that sort of shape us? And how are we shaped by those things? And going to this idea of the compline, I, I'd, I'd enjoy hearing uh, you explained to some of our listeners a little more about that part of the Anglican tradition. And so I think there may be some of us who are aware of of that part of Anglican tradition, but we don't know like all the details of where it came from and why. From the very, very early church, at least we've we, there's evidence in the third and fourth century. Um, it was Christians would rise in the middle of the night to do night prayer, sometimes at, often at midnight, um, but in the middle of the night would get up. This actually is, was something that was taken from Judaism before it. The, in Psalms, it talks about, uh, um, the Psalmist writes about uh, something like, I'm gonna get this wording wrong, but something like, I, I come to you seven times a day, right? There's also, of course, the repeated phrase of, when I pray in the bed, when I cover my bed with tears, like this idea of like coming to God in our, in our beds, right? As we're sleeping or as we're laying down to rest. So, um, but particularly having seven different times of prayer was adopted by early, the early church and then early monastics in particular, right? Benedict picked this up and has set times of prayer throughout the day. In the Anglican tradition and in other traditions, um, but I'll speak specifically like, like Catholic, Lutheran, they, both of those um, groups have Compline prayer, night prayer. And Anglicanism specifically, they took um, the times of prayer that monks had. So, you know, terse, sex, non, that um, basically every three hours of prayer, and then um, condensed those into four prayer services. So um, morning prayer, noon, a short noontime prayer, uh, evening prayer, which is sometimes called Vespers, and then um, later Compline was added 
And so now we have four. Um, and so, but Compline was added because it was always, like I said, from the very beginning, part of the Christian tradition. So even when there was a time when Anglicanism really just had morning and evening prayer, there were still sort of other prayer books out there that always had these night prayers um, because it was, it was something that was always part of the tradition and particularly that the monks, you know, still, right, as we speak, rise in the middle of the night and um, will pray. So the idea was to kind of take monastic prayer practices and make them available for regular folks, for everyone. And so um, they did that through kind of shortening and condensing and making it four times a day instead of all day. <laughs> so that's where the prayer services come from, like the different services. Compline um, is interesting because night prayer has been practiced for a long time in the Christian tradition and because night itself is such a, a vulnerable time for all human beings, particularly if you think of before we had electric light, right? This, this was night was rather terrifying and you couldn't, there was no telephone to call 911 if, if something caught on fire, a thief broken. Um, the idea of spirits or ghosts or demons at night is in every single human culture. Um, nighttime has always been this kind of deeply vulnerable, somewhat frightful time for people. And so you feel that in these prayers. There's there's an acknowledgement of peril. There's an acknowledgement of danger. There's an acknowledgement over and over again of death and mortality with sleep and death um, deeply linked. And then it's constantly inviting God into that. And so for me, especially in 2017, going through this time of darkness and struggle, I needed kind of a tether back to prayer, but it needed to not be too shiny or too um, victorious and triumphalistic, right? I needed something that kind of acknowledged the darker, more vulnerable sides of life. And and so Compline certainly does that. It's interesting to me that it's coming out right now, essentially. You know, when, when the pandemic started, I think First, a lot of us were thinking, oh, this will be two weeks. <laughs> you know? yeah. And then it stretched longer and longer. And there was a lot of fear and anxiety. And I remember, I think there was a lot of sense of how do we cope? And um, Paul Marshall, one of our, our, who is Anglican as well, and is a, one of our board members at the Media Project, he was the one who was, uh, we were chatting and he, he talked about using the Compline every night, he and his wife, who's also an Anglican uh, priest. I bought this and I, I, I have to admit, I haven't been effectively using it, partly because I, I think when you have kids, you look at this, the compline, and it's it's beautiful, but you're not sure where to, like, which parts of it to use. <laughs> I'm really curious to, to hear more of, like, how you started using it, especially, like, with family, with kids. Right. Um, do you do it every weeknight or every, all seven days of the week? How do yeah. you... Okay, so it started actually years ago. I also would go to a sung Compline service of this Catholic church up the street, and it was completely dark, and this and this small kind of male chorus would just sing in a completely dark church with just a few candles, and everyone was silent, and nobody talked. You just go in. It's dark. Nobody even knows you're there. You sit. You have this kind of sung over you, and you left. 
which I just loved. I loved it. So I kept sneaking into this Catholic church and to do this. So when things got difficult and I felt I couldn't pray, this had been sort of a practice that I just kind of on and off done for years, just not even really consciously thinking of it as a practice because I would do it maybe three times a week. And the next week I would only do it once. And then I wouldn't do it at all the next week. And then sometimes I'd pick, it was real kind of spotty. And it was really when my nights became full of anxiety and sorrow that I started really pretty consistently going to it every night. At first, actually I would just pray it alone. Then we did begin to pray it with our kids um, when they were about four and probably seven. So it was still when my youngest was still kind of learning to read. And I'm sorry, my oldest was learning to read. So she would like start reading it. Since, I mean, it's funny, I didn't at all. I didn't write the book with the pandemic in mind. Of course, it was 2018 when I really started writing it. I could have, we could have never imagined what was waiting but it's strangely timely. It's um, there, the themes of the book, um, even specific kind of sentences that I I wrote um, are so applicable to things that we are, that are on the front page of, of the news now and in ways I could have just never, ever predicted. When the pandemic hit, um, it, it, we did kind of return to this practice of Compline we don't do it every day. Honestly, I I want to say this even as an Anglican priest, but also a mom of, of small, I have a one-year-old. I don't do anything every day. There's almost no spiritual practice that I can accomplish every day. <laughs> Some days it's an accomplishment to get your teeth brushed during the pandemic with three kids, but we do it fairly often at night. Um, usually after we put the kids to bed now, it's short and um, I'll have been up Compline alone or, or with my husband and we will go through it. Um, we'll pray through it. The other thing, just side note for families, part of the problem is people don't know how to use the Book of Common Prayer. And it's not, I don't think it's very self, it's it's not like user-friendly. It's not really clear. Um, so, the, But there is, if you look in the table of contents, a little headline that says something like, prayers for individuals and families. And they're much shorter than the, um, than the longer prayer services. So they are more suitable for children. I mean, they're one page long, so they're really short. So if you're wanting to do something with kids, they're great to do because even if you just pick one, they'll memorize it pretty quickly. We have a friends who do Vespers every night. It's less than five minutes it's evening prayer and their kids now you know have it memorized so that's the easier for families i mean if you want to be a overachiever and try to do the whole evening prayer or morning prayer service with your family like more power to you but it is long when you have kids involved so that's a great tip i see that in this book so i will i will make use of that and i, I like <laughs> what you said too with with kids you know, regarding litur- you know, liturgical practice in the home or spiritual formation, I think sometimes it's like more important than, I agree with you that sometimes instead of trying to enforce regularity through all moods and every day, I think trying to read a devotional or to do a compline prayer 
in, in ways where the kids, like you said, when they love being part of it. Yeah. And we've also seen that during different seasons of our life or different seasons of our kids' life, we have to be flexible and adopt different things. But yeah, I tell a story in the book on the chapter, Soothe the Suffering. My little girl always said smooth the suffering because she was just learning to read. And so she would constantly say smooth the suffering, which we still pray to this day. It's just this little sort of memory of when she was like little six and seven year old learning this prayer. I, I didn't, I didn't grow up Anglican. So this is all a new kind of thing to me, but to my kids, these traditions that we sort of don really form their vocabulary about the world. They, it completely shapes sort of their own practices, but also their own, it gives them language, right? And, and so even it's interesting the way I, I didn't grow up in, in the Anglican tradition and even just the, the way my kids sort of think and talk about the faith is, is so different than I did as a six and seven year old because I, I didn't know any of this. I didn't have any of, of these kinds of prayers. So it's um, interesting to see what they attach to and, and what they don't. I mean, there's other things they like completely don't want to do and don't resonate with, but there's some things they get really into. By the way, are, you know, I noticed, I think on your, on your website, you had PDFs for the Anglican Book of Common Prayer or the Compline Service from the uh, Anglican book from 20 more recent years and then the, yeah. the Episcopal book and then the Canadian Episcopal and an Irish one. Yeah. I was curious if you noticed any differences between those compounds oh, yeah. and if there was anything important worth telling people about. Yeah, they're different. I haven't spent enough time doing other ones to to recommend. And there were other even, I mean, it's done all over the world. So like I found a very cool one um, from I think Kenya um, but there was, I couldn't find an online source for it. So I couldn't link to it on my website. So panning out from Compline alone, Anglicanism now is a global movement. It, there's actually far more Anglicans in the global South than there are in America and Europe. Um, and so these liturgies have it's not like everyone in the world does the British liturgy. I mean, Kenyans have, have written their own liturgy. have and, and so these liturgies have indigenized in each place is the point. Um, and so it's really cool to, on during um, the season of a church season of Epiphany, many churches I've been to here in America will, will try out liturgies from other places in the world. It is interesting how how things are different, how culture spills into this. An example I use a lot is the Kenyan liturgy, which is just, it's just gorgeous. It's beautiful, but it's much more, um, there's a lot more kind of earth agrarian um, imagery as part of it. Yeah, it's really connected to the earth, but it's also very communal. I mean, to the point where I once had some parishioners get upset because they said it was socialist. It was written by folks that were not deeply shaped by Western individualism. And that comes across in the liturgy. There's language like, I am because we are, we are because he is, because Christ is. Christ is the host. We are his guest. It's the whole thing is like a, is like a, is a, focuses on hospitality and community, which are deeply important, right? And 
one of the beautiful things about a global communion is we can sort of draw on the resources of other places. Absolutely. I am curious, you told us about the impetus for the book in 2017. I'm sort of curious what, as time went on, did your ability to sleep or pray, did nights change over time? And did you see resolution on, on sort of that uh, struggle or conflict you were dealing with? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer is yes, for sure. I mean, I think that part of me writing this book was coming to some peace about these questions, not coming to an easy answer. I, I still don't have that. I don't, I don't think I ever will, but coming to a new place of trust in God that I'm, I don't, I'm not sure I had before. The book doesn't really tie up in a bow, but I will say there are questions that I raise in it that are addressed later in the book, particularly in the final chapter, which is the prayer ends all for your love's sake. So the end of the book is all about the love of God. Yeah. So my first book, I really intentionally kind of wrote where people can just sort of pick it up and just, and if there's a particular chapter that strikes you, you can just read it. I mean, it's, it is linear in some sense. Like it, I think people get more if they read, you know, through the book, but it, it doesn't, it's, it's not particularly linear, but this book much more sort of raises questions that are then later addressed and maybe resolved or at least, well, at least attempt to sort of speak into them. So I do feel like part of the process of me writing this book, I, I feel hopeful about the truth of the story of Jesus and the hope of the resurrection in a way that I didn't um, maybe five years ago. And part of that was suffering and part of that was writing this book. But it's not a, I mean, one thing I was really aware of is that there are certain Christian books. A friend of mine actually said, please don't write one of those books that ends like things were hard, but it's all tidy now and everything's tied up. And so the book certainly has humor and that sort of thing, but it, it's, um, I try to be really honest about the darkness. I try not to paper over it or lessen it. I think actually the church in America, particularly evangelicals, uh, can have a tendency to be too kind of optimistic or happy clappy or over enthusiastic about, um, I guess, defending God's reputation by making the darkness not seem quite so dark. So the book um, tries to avoid that. But I think after we have talked about darkness, we turn and the light is brighter. And so the book ends, the last chapter is called Dawn, and it ends with sort of hope. I look forward to reading it. And, and one question I'm curious about is, you know, you're, people often refer to themselves as night people or morning people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, how does, does that matter at all to you're thinking here on prayer in the night in terms of those of us, and I'm, I'm a night person, I think, who your kids go to bed and that's when I can think more clearly and maybe stay up sometimes late and work on stuff. So I don't know which I am. Um, I, I'm certainly not a morning person, so I guess that makes me a night person. But so the book, I, and I address, and my, my best friend loves nighttime. He loves to walk around at night. He goes he's kind of a contemplative soul and goes out at night and prays. I kind of bring that up in the book because I know certain people love nighttime. So when I talk about the dangers, the 
terror of night. There's some folks that don't connect with that at all. I'd say a couple of things about that. Number one, some of this is because like, I, I think all of us given enough darkness for long enough experience vulnerability. We, um, some of our love for night is because we can flick on a switch or because there's street lights, right? Or we can wander through the city and there's, and the, the light, you know, the lights kind of sparkle at night. But if you get out to deepest darkness for long enough, particularly if, the, if there's not a moon, the moon's not out or it's cloudy and there is inevitably this experience of kind of, of being overwhelmed by the dark. So some of our experience of kind of loving light, loving nighttime is because we have light, right? It's because we have artificial light and illumination. I mean, I have grown to love night. There's beauty in night um, that I talk about in this book that I have actually come to value more through writing this book. But I also talk about night as a phenomenon because whether an individual loves night or not, night as a symbol has come to mean something in across culturally even. I mean, Shakespeare like uh, talks about the comfort killing night. Um, and the dark night of the soul is something that St. John of the Cross, 16th century, I think, talked about this sort of doubt and, um, and darkness and fear even. And, um, and what I'd say in the book, like part of the staying power of that image is because night itself has come to mean something. So there's a reason he didn't call it like the rough day of the soul or you know, the long afternoon of the soul. Um, there is something about the darkness of night that has symbolic meaning to us as, as human beings. I'm also still a little scared of the dark. I am. And um, like men and women experience this differently. There was um, after the Me Too movement, the, and I, I linked to this in my book, but um, or in the footnotes, I talk about uh, there was a study and it, it, it was actually a, a survey of women that said if, if there were no men on earth for a day, <laughs> what would you do? And um, it was some crazy, it was over 90% said they would just walk around at night um, alone because wow. it, that's something that you can't do um, without at least quite a bit of fear and trepidation. Um, so I feel like that's also being a woman in America and in the world has informed my experience of night um, as well. Night is, night's a very fascinating metaphor, I think. And it sounds like you, you really explore different angles of it. And it's like we talked about, I, uh, I think it's so apropos to people surviving all kinds of issues in their lives, spiritual things and COVID <laughs> even learning how to, to think about, uh, life in a new way so this is a great read you should pick up um, at all your book retailers prayer in the night for those who work or watch or weep by tish harrison warren thanks for joining us tish i really appreciate learning about your your latest book yeah thank you so much for having me this episode of the Religion Unplugged podcast was hosted by executive editor Paul Gladder, edited and produced by Peter Freebie. The Religion Unplugged podcast is a production of religionunplugged.com and is part of The Media Project, a nonprofit dedicated to equipping journalists to cover religion. 
To read our award-winning global religion news coverage or to find out more about Religion Unplugged, visit religionunplugged.com or follow us on Twitter at religionmag.